in that moment when you're asking that question you're really prioritizing your curiosity over their feelings that's ali kuao developer advocate and solution architect at trident honestly allyship means something different to everyone and i think it's sort of just having that shared understanding um and that shared motivation to listen and to be there for the people who you know want their voices heard ali kuao explaining what allyship means. Diversity, equality and inclusion are what we explore in this new episode of Le Podcast. Le Podcast equips you to make a positive change in your organization. Each episode turns insight into actions that you can use straight away to build momentum and create lasting change from yourself to your team, from your team to other teams, and from other teams to the entire organization. I'm your host, Alexis Monville, and I believe in the ability of people and teams to find better ways to increase their impact and satisfaction. Let's jump right into the conversation with Ali to learn more about what it means. Hey, Ali, can you tell us a little bit more about you and your background? Yeah, so uh, first of all, thank you for having me on this podcast. I joined Red Hat back in 2019. Um, prior to that, I was actually a software engineering student in a university in Wales. In terms of my personal background, I actually grew up in London. I've lived in London my whole life and I moved to Wales for university when I was 19. Um, and the rest is history. I've been at Red Hat for just over a year now as a solution architect on the Red Hat graduate program. And yeah, it's, it's been a really good experience so far. Excellent. I think I first heard about you because you ran a 14-day program to a more knowledgeable you. Mm -hmm. And it was fantastic. Each day resonated with me big time. And could you tell us uh, the motivation behind the program? Yeah, sure. Um, I feel like the main reason this program came about was Um, you know, aside from the fluctuating levels of COVID globally, I felt like there was definitely a spark to highlight the continued, you know, civil unrest that's been magnified and brought back to the surface after the brutalities and documented injustice that has been going on in the US. So what I thought was important to do alongside one of my colleagues was to make a point of the fact that it's not only is it possible for you know black people not located outside of the US to be affected by what's going on but there are experiences shared by black people and some other minorities in their everyday lives that have been you know frequently glazed over or not or not much attention has been paid to it so uh yeah so as a result some red hatters and i came together um and created an initiative that we now know as 14 days to more knowledgeable you that provides the safe space to offer daily insight, be it through like an article, a podcast episode, or a personal story into the realities of their fellow Black colleagues, friends, and family in the UK and Ireland. What, what would you say are the main aspects of the programme? That's really a good question. I feel like what really brings the programme to life, I would say, are people's personal stories. I think we had that a total of three personal stories from three different people who contributed to the initiative, I felt like it really brought things, you know, closer to home. I think it definitely helped, you know, make people realise that there definitely is another person behind the screen or another person at Red Hat who can relate to this sort of thing. 
And I think it makes it even more significant that it's personal stories in the UK, something that I've definitely heard throughout my life, really, even until now, that it uh, just the fact that, not the fact, but just people's opinions that, you know, Black people here don't have it as hard as in the US. And I would say that is definitely true to an extent in regards to like the brutalities, but I feel like um, in the UK, that there's so much more that happens under the surface such as microaggressions that I feel would be really beneficial for people to you know keep an eye out for and be conscious of it made me think a lot it's really comfortable for me to say that uh I try that we are an open inclusive meritocracy mm-hmm. and I can repeat that every day and I'm really comfortable with that and I think it's really good and so on and that's it yeah, there's no 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 question about that but one thing that that made me realize, and I will draw a parallel with, um, I have I have three kids and uh, I have two daughters that are the, the youngest one is eighteen, so they are they are not really uh, uh, young uh, anymore. <laughs> uh, I bought um, from a charity organization uh, femi- feminism uh, t-shirts mm-hmm. that were that were really I, I thought it, they were really fun and uh, I wore uh, I wore one and I, I offered the others to uh, to the girls and uh, to everybody in the family in reality. And the message was fun because uh, I thought it was fun. That will not work with everybody. And uh, that was written, girls just want to have fun. Then under that, it's a fundamental right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a good, uh, good joke by, uh, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. And, um, and once I remember the, the, one of the girls saying, oh, but, uh, and you, you are doing that and you're saying you're a feminist. And I was puzzled because I thought um, there was no necessary connection between what she was observing and the fact that I thought I would want to um, have equal, uh, consider, consider women as equal, and uh, there was no question about that in my mind. But mm-hmm. I realized that the connection was not obvious. And during the program, that was a long uh, intro to that. And during the program, I realized that when I, in my young age, I was actively involved in uh, anti-racism organizations. Mm-hmm. And I was demonstrating about that. And, and after some time, it, it faded away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all, all that introduction to ask a question of, I thought I was an ally, mm-hmm. and I'm. I wonder if I am really an ally, and and I wonder even if being being an ally is enough. Mm-hmm. What do you think? That, 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 that's such a lovely um, intro to that question. I would honestly say that, well, at least from my personal experience or from my personal opinion, that to just say that you're an ally. Um, probably isn't enough it's more so what you do so obviously going back to your personal examples it's really good that you know you are active in terms of being a feminism or like being feminist so you know wearing the t-shirt like supporting them like I, I think it's quite hard because quite a lot of people compare what their standards of being an ally is to what other people's standards of being an ally is and I would say overall there is no real checklist or what it takes to be an ally because you know everyone has their own interpretation of the term and there's no one way to do it but uh, something that I would say is the gist of being an ally personally is you know listening 
and amplifying the voice of you know marginalized groups so like you said um when you did it before um people who did experience racism or advocating like women's rights i do have an extract with me of my input of what allyship means to me in one of my colleagues blogs on the importance of allies so if you don't mind i'll just quickly i'll just quickly go through it um so on the on the blog i said personally allyship to me means acknowledging accepting and embracing our similarities and differences where differences are present this branches out to being open to listening avoiding complacency and making an effort to understand and be proactive where helpful while continuously educating ourselves and others with empathy, respect and kindness in areas where we may fall short. Allyship means understanding that at the end of the day, we are all human. And even if you can't do everything perfectly, you're wholeheartedly making an effort to do what it is you do to the best of your ability. That's just a little sneak peek um, of my input. And for anyone who is listening to this, who also works at Red Hat, I would also recommend that you check out part two of the Diversity and Inclusion, The Importance of Allies, a series blog post where you'll see a bit more about what I have to say about allyship in more detail and hear from all the other wonderful diversity and inclusion leaders at Red Hat. Just to sum up everything I've said in just one sentence, I would say, honestly, allyship means something different to everyone. And I think it's sort of just having that shared understanding um, and that shared motivation to listen and to be there for the people who you know want their voices heard. Yeah, it's it's beautiful, beautifully written. I need to copy paste the extract in the blog in the blog post that will be a companion to this podcast. Yeah, it's really beautiful and it really resonates with me. It really says being human and mm-hmm. being your whole self and being human is is something really important. I wonder if it's uh, if it's suddenly that I'm getting old and I realize more things now, but I feel I learned a lot during those past years and I continue mm-hmm. to learn. And I feel the more I learn about that, the more the more I have to learn and to understand. Mm-hmm. I, I will give you another uh, an, another example. I spent 15 hours with uh, Lawrence uh, Fishburne, mm-hmm. the, the uh, American actor, and he yeah. told me the story of Malcolm X. X. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I didn't really spend 15 hours with Lars Fishburne. It's an audiobook and it's the autobiography of Malcolm X. Yeah. Uh, and the narrator is Lawrence Fishburne. But I had that feeling, and that, that's always the feeling with audiobook that you have someone who is telling you a story. All that to say that at some point, uh, Malcolm X uh, described the fact that he's, he's considering the 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 people from New York fighting for social rights, going into Alabama, and is saying they are they are totally wrong. They should not do that. And I was when I when I read that, I said, no, 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 no. That's what is wrong with that? They said they should fight for civil rights in New York because there's a lot to do there. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that, yeah, I I, I did in a way the same thing. I was demonstrating against apartheid in Strasbourg while uh, apartheid is in it was in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I hope it had an impact, but I'm not really sure about that. But what was I doing uh, in Strasbourg? And, um, and I remember one of my friends uh, at that time uh, coming from uh, Algeria. He was French, but he was born in Algeria. 
And that's the kind of things that you will wear all your life on your face. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me, I'm considered a stranger, a foreigner by everybody in, uh, in there. And I have to admit that at that time, I hope it changed. Foreigners were not necessarily welcome in small cities in the, in the country. And he told me, I tried to go back to Algeria to say, okay, I will, I will end my study there and I will continue my study in Algeria. Mm-hmm. And he told me, it's not possible because over there, they are calling me the French guy. Mm-hmm. And so I have nowhere to go. And I, 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 was, I was horrified by that. On, but, and I, I didn't know what, what I could do for, for that person. Mm-hmm. How would you say we can deal with our with our past as a country and we can have people that I, I don't really know how to formulate the question, but how to deal with that kind of situation for people. Yeah, honestly, I would say that that's probably not the first time I've heard a story, you know, where someone's recounted their experiences of going to one place feeling like they don't belong and then going to the place where people say they belong and they're not belonging there either. I think that's something that is experienced by quite a lot of people, but I can't I can't put a number to it. But um, in terms of addressing that, wait, sorry, could you remind me of your question? <laughs> <laughs> That's in a way it's addressing or it's addressing our colonial past or addressing the fact that we have people that are coming from um, for, prob- probably the they are the the second or third generation immigrants from another country. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. That's put me back on track. I was sort of just going off on a tangent, forgetting what the question was. (laughs) So yeah, in terms of second and third generation immigrants or people who moved to a country because their parents did or family did, I would say in order to educate people who are already in that country, or probably not even educate because everyone is accountable for their own learning, I think it's definitely worth keeping in mind that it's important to surround yourself by people who, you know, are open to learning. You can't really force it down everyone's anyone's throat, right? Like, you, you have to be open to being open to the fact that people probably don't want to change the way they want to think or be open to the fact that people are really, like, interested in learning more or, like, learning about ways that they can, you know, become closer to you or learn more about, you know, an ethnicity or a culture in more detail. So I think if I had to give advice to younger generations out there, I would honestly say it's it's important to educate ourselves as well. Even though some people say that they're, they, they belong to like generations of immigrants or anything, we don't know everything, right? Like there's always something more to learn, um, especially in like the educate, like in terms of like the educational curriculum, like it can't cover completely everything. And that was definitely another topic that was touched on in the 14 Days to Monological You initiative. Something that we noted was that in the, you know, British education curriculum like they don't really cover all aspects of you know slavery or all aspects of things that happened in the past or things that happened that wasn't quite so English or quite so European centric um and obviously it's something like in terms of the world's history it's quite hard to encapsulate that all into one sort of history lesson one sort of history curriculum so I would advise younger generations of immigrants and other people who would like to learn more um, to just go out and educate yourselves. The internet is very much free. Um, there's probably a lot of sources, a lot of stories, a lot of recounts of things that have happened in the past. And 
there's no such thing as knowing it all or knowing too much because there's always some sort of learning that you can do my main point here is um education like but where there is knowledge there is power and as long as more people are I, I feel like the younger generation is definitely becoming like f from what I've seen from you know the Black Lives Matter protests and not even protests but the Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter movement um people are taking a stance on what's going on and people are realizing that it's wrong people are taking this opportunity to educate themselves a lot more or in greater depth and I think that's I think that's definitely a step in the right direction, but there's definitely a lot more education or self-education that needs to be taught and given to oneself for there to be, you know, that good amount of change and to avoid more recounts of experiences as you've previously mentioned if you're Algerian friend. Yeah, I, I love the advice of uh, learning more about uh, history and uh, especially the recent history. That's definitely something I did not learn uh, in school. And yeah. I had to I had to learn that by myself. And uh, there was a, a, a really good series in in France about that was behind the maps, and mm -hmm. that was fascinating about all recent history and uh, all the things that we don't know, but in a way we think we know, and in reality we absolutely don't know. We don't know why why it happens and uh, when it happens really, and uh, all the reasons behind and. When we know something, we know only one perspective of it, and, mm. um, and uh, that perspective is is of course biased. It's only one perspective, um, so that's a that's a very very good uh, advice. I think connected to that question, and uh, there's that question that I love to ask to people, and I realize that it's not a good question. Mm -hmm. um, I love to ask a question that is, "Where are you from?" And I love to ask that question because in some contexts, people answer, oh, I'm from uh, the finance department or I'm from Alabama. And I, I love that because it was a question that could open so many doors and so many different doors because based on what the people are thinking at the moment, mm -hmm. they answer something different. So I love that question. I realized that that question was not so good when, when we, we moved to the US with my, my family uh, a few years back. Mm -hmm. And of course, my accent, uh, people are able to catch that I'm not from Boston, even if I just say hello or thank you. And, uh, and the next question for, from people were, where are you from? Mm -hmm. And I realized it was not a good question because my wife was a little bit offended by that question. And she was systematically answering, uh, we are from and the town where we li lived at that time. Mm -hmm. So I, I had that discussion with her and she was... She was saying, yeah, why, why, why people are asking me where I'm from, like if I don't belong? Uh, mm. I live here. That's where <laughs> I live. That's my home. Mm. And I, she was really sensitive with that. What do you think is happening in that, in that situation? I don't know. I, th I think that sort of question is a matter of people not really saying what they want to say, right? But not wanting to be impolite. But either way, they come out. I, I guess the interpretation of the receiver of that question can 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 vary so widely. So I guess there'd be some people who wouldn't take offence, and there'd be some people who, you know, like like you mentioned, if your wife would take offence because it's just like, what 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 do you really want to know from that question? Like, it's not. But if I give you an answer, would you be like, where am I really from, or would you keep pushing until you get the answer that like you want that validation, that confirmation that you sort of had in your mind? And this was definitely something that we you know touched on in the fourteen days to more knowledge for you initiative. 
where that that's that's a question that's commonly asked and it's not just asked to people of color but it's also asked to people people in places where people I, I don't know I guess it's sort of sometimes seen as a, a conversation starter and I can see why it is but um, I think it's the way in which the question is asked it also depends on what answer the person who's asking the question is willing to settle for in front of the person they're asking it to so in terms of the initiative we, we really tackled the where are you really from question because um, an experience that many other black associates have been able to relate to and I'm sure many other people would be able to relate to you know being at a party or something or sort of just meeting someone in a formal professional context and people asking where you're from so if I had to give a personal example so for example if I if I went to someone and they they said to me they asked me where are you from where are you from I would naturally say oh I'm from you know London (laughs) and something that I do off a, a response that I do often get is oh okay and then there'd be like that really awkward pause and then they'd be like but like where where are you really from like I know you're from London but like where are your parents from and it's like why could you like I I think it's quite important that people are very specific with their questions I've had friends who have been even more you know vague about their answer to make a point out of it so someone would be like oh where are you where are you from and they'd be like oh I'm from a very specific area about where they're living at the moment and they'd be like, oh, but where are you really from? They'd be like, oh, I'm from, you know, Britain. And they'd be like, oh, but where, where are you from? They'd be like, oh, I'm from Europe. Like just making a point to show that it's just a really silly question to ask if you just keep digging at it. Yeah, I, I just feel like in regards to the where are you really from question, um, often it's often the case that people want confirmation that the person isn't, you know, British or isn't from wherever, wherever the location is they they are or if they're if their you know location sounds completely like that their country of origin sounds completely different to where where they typically think they're from I'm not quite sure if I formulated that correctly but um one of my colleagues he was born in Zimbabwe I believe he was just saying that when he asked people where they're from who have a Zimbabwean accent it's because he recognizes that accent and that's why you ask them where they're from, just for confirmation of where they're from. So like I said, it's definitely the intent behind the question. I think it's definitely worth clarifying with the person before asking. But I think when people do ask that question, something that they do do and should keep in mind is that it's really important to approach the question towards the person you want to ask it to with sensitivity and clarity. So if you approach the question where are you from or where are you really from in that moment when you're asking that question you're really prioritizing your curiosity over their feelings in terms like in you're prioritizing your curiosity over their how comfortable they feel or how much they belong in that moment in time you may receive a really guarded response so someone you know giving a really vague answer like oh I'm from this really specific area because it's a really silly question honestly I don't really think you need to ask where people are from then again, I can also understand the conversation if, like, for example, we go to one of the Red Hat events. Well, from last year, we went to a Red Hat event called um, RHTE, which is in Vienna. And obviously you meet so many different people and people are asking where you're from because they're curious to know, you know, which office you're located in or what your ac- like where, where your accent is from. I can see how that can take a turn for the worst, depending on the motives of the person who is asking the question or the way in which they ask it. 
Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very precious answer. I like the point about prioritizing uh, curiosity over feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really import, important point. Uh, whatever is your intent and uh, the motivation behind your, the question, we need to realize that it's not a good question, that adding really to it will not really help. <laughs> that's a, that's an horrible question in reality. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot. If people want to share about where they are coming from and if they are from Scotland and their grandfather were coming from Ireland or whatever, um, mm-hmm. that, that, that's their problem. If they want to share that with you at some point, maybe they will. And that's yeah. good. But why are you asking that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's such an odd question like there's always that awkward pause after someone's asked it because in when people ask me in my mind I'm just like are they are they trying to ask what I think they're trying to ask or are they genuinely curious in like where I grew up and my accent because I, I, I often get the you know question about where my accent's from because I've just moved from London to Wales and somehow that's just messed up my accent and people are just like oh where, where are you from so <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think it definitely depends on the, the intent behind the question but I would just say try and avoid it like you said it doesn't you don't have to know if you did happen to know the person in a lot like if if you became a lot more close to the person or seemed to you know be chatting on them on a more regular basis then you'd probably have that space or that comfort to be able to ask that question or then be able to tell you themselves I, I think it's definitely an interesting question to ask upon first meeting someone some people just can't really think on their feet off the bat or it's probably just to fill in the awkward silence when you first meet people i did the training about hiring improving our hiring practices and it reminds me uh something because i i was pushing some managers to to say that maybe they have some biases in their hiring practices mm-hmm. and, uh, and this is a dangerous territory and usually people are are convinced they have absolutely no biases and they are doing the right thing. And what I was saying is that it's not easy to do the right thing. There's a lot of biases that we have and, uh, and you, you need to admit that you, you are able to judge someone in the first 15 seconds you are seeing them. Yeah. And the problem is if you are not conscious of that, you will just use your intellect to confirm your first impression. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly what, how the biases are working. So you need to be conscious of that. And that's why you need to write down all the questions you will ask in an interview beforehand. And you are forced to go through those questions. You cannot uh, escape that path and ask other questions that will confirm your first impression. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's, it's really challenging. And, um, and I told them, you know, I worked with a, a small system integrators in, in Paris at, at, uh, at um, a long time ago. It's, uh, it's probably uh, more than 10 years ago. And um, in the first gathering of the, the whole uh, company uh, in Paris, there was probably 150 people or something. Mm-hmm. There was something that was visibly different from other system integrators I worked uh, with at that time. There was a lot more women and a lot more people coming from various diversity that we, we have in France. Uh, mm-hmm. France is, a, is at the crossroad of a lot of different countries. So, of course, mm-hmm. there's a lot of diversity yeah. present in the population, not necessarily in all the companies. But mm-hmm. in that company, that was obvious that it was different from the others. Mm-hmm. So I, I inquire about their hiring practices. That's something our HR person is doing. Uh, she's uh, changing all the resume 
and stripping out all the information about the location where the people live, their yeah. first names, there's where they, they did their studies, mm -hmm. and to keep only the things that we are supposed to make assumption on. Mm -hmm. And she's rewriting all the resume, so they are all in the same format. Mm -hmm. So there's no, there's no way to, to know things about that. And I said, but you don't judge people from where they live. And say, yeah, we, we also think that. But the result is in our, in our resume selection, we mm -hmm. are selecting different people for the, for the interview. Yeah. And the result is when we see people that we, inter we interview them and we hire them. Mm -hmm. um, people we would have probably never selected because mm -hmm. they are coming from whatever, Saint-Denis or whatever. Do you think that example is uh, just an example, just a point in time? Mm -hmm. Do you think we have a problem in our hiring practices? And um, do you think there's ways to fix that? That's a really good question. Um, I, I, I would just like to say off, off the bat that, that that hiring process or that hiring implement process of hiring in regards to you know hiding people's information I think that sounds brilliant um it definitely strips back you know the identity that's behind it because there's so much that you know people could probably be unconsciously biased of such as you know the person's name or you know what, what where they studied or even their like home address <laughs> like you said um so I think it's really good that that recruiter definitely took time out of her day to you know put put it put in their main information like put their main information to the resume but present it in a similar format so there was no space for you know deviation I think that's definitely um, a good way to go about it but in terms of um, general hiring processes that's definitely quite a tricky question because different organizations can tackle hiring differently it's it, it's a double-edged sword like it it depends on what you want to how how you want to recruit different individuals overall I think that's important that there is representation in a company and um some a, a frequent argument that I tend to hear um in response to that is are you compromising on quality the, the quality of the candidates um in favor of representation and the answer to that can be we don't have to like we, we don't have to compromise anything and um, I think there are very much skilled people of different ethnicities from different locations everywhere and I think it's just putting that extra effort into scouting them out and finding them um and something I do tend to frequently see on um LinkedIn is uh, I think I signed up to like this um girls page I'm not quite sure what it is but I think it's like a woman's empowerment page and they tend to give like you know empowering quotes or um showing people who've like started to you know rise into more senior positions like women rising into more senior positions in companies because you're, you're definitely seeing more of it today like you're definitely seeing people you know like in companies or industries where it used to be traditionally like you know male dominated you're seeing more women come through and you know excel in their fields and prove themselves something that I have seen quite a lot those pages you know highlighting women of color who are you know pushing those boundaries like reaching like 
really cool careers or like reaching a new level of success and they thought it's a really good idea to praise them and I completely agree um and something that I did frequently see in the comments is people going oh like we shouldn't be like pointing out their race at all like it should just be about their um motivation it should just be about their successes and something I think is really important to note from like these posts or like um posts that do celebrate you know women or um women and women of colour is that sometimes this attention does need to be paid to them like for now we do need to pay this attention so that you know it becomes something we do naturally the reason why we are highlighting it is because it's not something you see often and when we do see it we want to celebrate it because it's something we should see more of and we want it to be like we I think we all want that shared um goal of not having to think about race anymore or think about the location where someone comes from or think about you know what their history was um in favor of like you know getting that perfect candidate but I feel like um where we are at the moment where people are still growing and learning and learning to you know overcome their unconscious biases I think it's really important we do make a point of celebrating those people who are reaching new levels at that it, it, it's not so common to see um, and wasn't so common to see before. Yeah, I, I think there are different ways to go about it. And um, going back to your question regarding the hiring process, I would honestly say, like, j- j- just just to go, just to link it to that little, I can't really describe it, um, just to link it back to what I said regarding highlighting women of colour who are doing really well or people of colour who are doing really well. I think it's really important that we sort of, or I think it'd be really beneficial if we did take that stance in um, hiring as well. So yeah, even though we are paying more attention to the fact that we are trying to have a more diverse or representative workforce, the end goal is that hopefully we won't need to think about this in the hiring. Hopefully it's something that comes naturally to people and it's something that, you know, we we hire them for their talents and we don't hire them because you know, they don't look like us or they don't have like qualifications that we're so familiar with. So yeah, I, I think I think that's my overall answer um, in terms of hiring. I think it's important to pay, pay extra attention, like especially now, so that if, if we pay attention now and don't continuously stall, I feel like that will just help us get to that end goal so much faster. And we won't need to like, you know, strip back the information like the women you were talking about did. Um, you could just present that person's information and they'd be treated just as equal as all the other candidates. Um, I think that would definitely be the ultimate goal. Definitely an approach that I think more organisations should take. I think my tat is definitely going in the right direction of from even offering that sort of training to begin with in terms of, you know, right for red hat and um, having unconscious biases because it's something that's very real and it's something like you, like it, the, the title says, it's unconscious. Like people aren't aware that they do have their biases until, you know, they realise that their whole team is not really representative, but there's so much diversity and representation in the UK and Ireland at least at least from my personal experience yeah so sorry for the long-winded answer but that's that's sort of what I was getting at yeah I didn't and I really appreciate the you know, all the details you you shared this is exactly the problem I think we have it's uh, it's not easy to to handle that problem because we would like to do the right thing we would like to think that we are doing the right thing and it's uncomfortable to realize sometimes that we are not and mm-hmm. I had that conversation with the, with the team and I, I, at some point I stopped them and say, okay, so we are doing the right thing. That's absolutely perfect. And uh, we are all white, all male in that leadership team. 
-hmm. So that's totally representative of the, the population of the world. You're absolutely right, all of you. Mm -hmm. All of us are absolutely right. <laughs> and so even if we are not consciously doing, the, <laughs> doing something wrong, we are not helping. So there was a lot of things around that. The, the, the fact that the job description could push away categories of people directly because there was too many requirements or too many. That was fascinating to me. Learning, learning about those studies that are re real studies. That's not the, that's not one idea of someone. It's uh, it's real studies that have been proven. It's it's fascinating to me. Uh, I have a friend who is, uh, his first name is Samir. He, he told me that when he was sending his resume. If he was stripping uh, the IR at the end of his first name, he was called back for an appointment immediately. Oh, But if he was leaving his first name like this, he had no appointment. Mm. And he told me he tried that several times. And uh, of course, he told me the, the problem is when I'm going to the appointment, usually the people who would have struck me from, from, the, from the, the selection at the, in the first place are not necessarily taking me there seriously. But uh, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. A... I, I, yeah I, I think it's definitely more common than we think that people are feeling the need to you know, change their traditional names because it doesn't sound quite like what what the recruit what they think the recruiters would want so for example um in breton like some people would change their cultural or like their traditional names to make it sound more european or more british and i think that's definitely a shame um and i feel like uh, i mean unless someone really wants to do it because they really like the name i feel like the people who do do it because they feel like they'd be you know have better chances at um getting recruited i think that's definitely part of the problem like it's just it's it's, it's just a shame that people would you know have their names changed and like it it, it just makes it really awkward because they they get hired they get recruited and it's like they don't feel like they were able to put like their original best self forward to begin with I, like I said before it, it is very common where people do tend to you know change like alter their name or completely change it and strip strip back like what they are originally just to appeal to recruiters yeah like like I said that's definitely a shame I also saw a um a post just just browsing the internet I did see there was a post on I think it was like a recruiter talking about how there were um, some people in her company, not the co her company, the company that she worked in, um, interviewing candidates. And she realized that they were being like really tough on the candidate. So she thought she'd play a little trick on them and, and give them their own resumes from when they first applied to their jobs because they'd been in their jobs for a long time. And they all rejected themselves. <laughs> and it was so crazy because I was just like, they, the fact that they said that the people weren't, you know, qualified enough. Um, I, I thought this was just quite interesting because I was like, the fact that you'd, like, I understand that you're, like, in a better position than where you were when you first began with, but everyone has that beginning of their journey, right? Like, everyone has a starting point. And it was just so interesting to see that they wouldn't even give themselves a chance if they were in that hiring seat. And I think that's, I, I thought that was definitely a good takeaway lesson, like, in, in regards to the fact that you might not, see 
something that you see in yourself where you are now but I think it's definitely important to give everyone you know that that chance that starting point where they'd be able to like grow and excel because that's where they are now and I just I just it definitely made me chuckle seeing that because I was just like it's it's crazy because if you if you can't accept yourself from your starting point like how, how much harder it would be if you don't see yourself in the person who you're interviewing or you, d- you don't think that they're the right fit because they're so different to what you have in mind so I think that's definitely something that you know hiring managers or people involved in the um, interview process should definitely keep in mind it's a very very good one I I, I love that experiment <laughs> uh, yeah it's uh, it's it's really important to work on our on our biases uh, and our the way the way we handle our our emotional system and our intellectual system and we use it to confirm the others and so on. Um, mm. Ali, it was really great to have you uh, on the show today. Uh, what would be the first thing you would recommend to people who want to improve? Oh, <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite a good question. Um, I've really enjoyed reading the book Girl, Woman, Other. Um, that focuses on the perspectives of, you know, different women of colour, different ages, um, from different generations. I think it's quite an interesting insight into, you know, how they grew up, like how they lived life differently in Britain, in Europe. I mean, that that, that, that definitely shouldn't be the starting point for everyone. But if someone did want a source to, you know, have a little read of and become a little bit of a, a a bit more of a knowledgeable version of themselves then yeah I think that's definitely a good book to read but um at the end of the day I can't really tell you where to start everyone's everyone's on their own journey and everyone can consume material differently but I'd say definitely just make use of the internet um it's very much free like I said before and you can find so many good resources like have conversations with your loved ones have conversations with people who you might not speak to too often and get to know them because we're, we're all living different timelines and it's important to be aware of that and be open to others. But yeah, that's that's all for me. Excellent. Thank you very much, Ali. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Le Podcast. Go to alexi.monville.com for the references mentioned in the episode and to find more help to increase your impact and satisfaction at work. Drop a comment or an email with your feedback or just to say hello. And until next time, to find better ways of changing your team.